Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Daniel chapter 2. I don't know how many of you remember the second Star Trek movie that came out in 1982 called The Wrath of Khan. Very interesting title. We have some Star Trek fans down there. Very interesting title. Uh, Captain Kirk and the crew of the USS Enterprise face off against the genetically engineered megalomaniac Khan who escapes a 15-year exile to come back and exact his revenge on Captain Kirk. And the movie ends with the cliffhanger with the death of Spock. And, and we're unfamiliar with words in our culture like wrath, the wrath of Khan. Just sounding, saying the word wrath sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? The wrath of Khan. Many of you have probably read John Steinbeck's famous novel, The Grapes of Wrath. It's about an Oklahoma family, the Jodes. Uh, They're in the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, and they want to find a better life for themselves by going to California during the Great Depression, during the Dust Bowl era. And so they go to California, and uh, the term Grapes of Wrath really comes from the Battle Hymn of the Republic, really comes from Revelation chapter 14. It's the imagery of the hungry masses showing wrath because they don't have enough food to eat. I'm not going to make any political statements about what's going on in our country, but it seems like maybe in Wisconsin and other places, there's wrath of the masses. In our culture, we think of wrath in terms of a space alien or of a famous novel by John Steinbeck. And then we also have the famous, the famous, the famous saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. You don't want to come in the clutches of a woman who's experienced a jilt or who has been um, brokenhearted, the wrath of an angry woman. Exactly what is wrath? Do we ever talk about wrath? Is there a difference between human wrath and God's wrath? You see, oftentimes the human wrath that we see is experienced in childish, capricious, arbitrary, selfish, out-of-control type ways. It's very random. But what happens when God himself vents his wrath? Does God even have a right to be a God of wrath? Daniel chapter 3 takes us right into the frenzy of the wrath of the king and shows us the difference between true and false worship Last week I left you hanging. We did not finish chapter 2, and I did that purposely because I want us to see something that happens towards the end of chapter 2. If you remember from last week, Nebuchadnezzar was living a pitiful illusion. He was embroiled in panic, fear, insecurity, hostility. He had this uh, crazy dream that he wanted interpreted, and so he was just living this pitiful illusion thinking he had everything this world had to offer, and he thought he was in charge, and then he lacked the peace 
that God gave him. And then he, he, we come to the dream where he finds out that he's basically going to be wiped off the map. He's the, he's the golden head of this statue. The true stone Jesus is going to come and shatter the statue into pieces and set up his eternal kingdom. And so how does Nebuchadnezzar respond to the answer to this dream? Well, let's pick up at the end of chapter 2, verse 46. Very interesting how the king responds. Daniel 2.46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. At first glance, it looks like maybe the king had a transformation. Maybe he got religion. He had somewhat of a spiritual experience. In New Testament terms, we may have thought maybe he got saved. He's different after the dream. But at closer glance, is this really true? What do we notice about King Nebuchadnezzar? He bows down and worships, doesn't he? But who's his object of worship? It's Daniel. He pays homage to Daniel. He's impressed with Daniel. Here's a man that was the only one in the nation that could interpret the dream. So he's impressed with Daniel. He, he likes Daniel. He's not bowing down to God. He's bowing down to Daniel. And notice what he says. Your God is the God of gods. Notice Nebuchadnezzar never says, he's my God, he's my king. It's, no, it's, it's your God, Daniel. He never personalizes it. You see, that's the big difference when it comes to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Many people can admire your faith in God. A lot of people may say, well, that's great that you have a faith in Jesus. I really like the fact that he's worked for your life. I'm really glad that you've got religion. I'm really glad that that is is something that's helpful in your life. That's your God. But they never say, Jesus is my Lord. He's my God. He's my personal Savior. They never personalize it and make it their own. In other words, what we see here in Nebuchadnezzar is conviction without conversion. He may have even gotten goosebumps. He had a religious experience, but he was not saved. He was not transformed by grace. John Owen, the great Puritan, gives an illustration, I think, that poignantly describes these type of people. He says it's like this. There's a man that's determined to go on a trip, And so he sets out on a trip, and he begins walking with intense focus on getting to his destination. And then all of a sudden, he gets caught in a rainstorm. Thunder and lightning, um, it starts to downpour, and immediately he goes and finds shelter in a house. And so he goes in the house because he's been disrupted. He doesn't want to stand up there and get struck by lightning. It would be miserable to sit in the pouring rain. And so he waits it out. And once the storm passes, what does he do? He gets right back out on the road and goes towards his destination with the same type of fervency he had before. And John Owen says it's a lot like a person that's enslaved to sin. 
They're going on their path of sin. They're going on their own path. And and when they get startled by maybe the gospels presented to them, or maybe they hear about the dangers of hell, or maybe they hear about eternal judgment, for a moment they're scared, for a moment they're discombobulated, and they go get temporary shelter. But once that is over, they get right back on the path and go towards the course that they were really heading toward, the the course of selfishness and sin. There's been no true spiritual transformation. He may have been under conviction. He may have had a quasi-religious experience, but he was not truly changed by grace because we see the very next chapter evidence that this man has not changed. So let's go into chapter 3 and find out what we, what, what we see the, the, going on in this king's life. Chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music... It gets kind of repetitive, doesn't it? All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands you come to the end of chapter two where it seems like the king's had a transformation and the first sentence of chapter three shocks you because here he is setting up a golden image to himself what gives king nebuchadnezzar what's going on as a matter of fact what image is burned in his mind from chapter two he is what We looked at last week, the golden head. So in a self-fulfilling type of prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar is going to make sure this dream does not happen. I'm not no golden head, I'm the whole body. 
So he's going to set up a golden image, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, as a monument to himself to make sure that this doesn't happen. I find it interesting that you see the word there, set up. The image that the king set up. It shows up seven times. He set it up. He set it up. The king set it up. Why the repetition? It's to show the arrogance of the king. I'm setting up the image. I am in charge. I am in control. I am arrogantly going to prop myself up as a monument. He has the illusion, remember, that he's in control of his future. What did we just look at last week? Look over real quick in your Bibles to chapter 2, verse 21. What did Daniel tell uh, about in his, in his prayer? Daniel 2, 21, God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So in an act of defiance, rebellion, arrogance, pride, the king says, I'm going to set up this image on the plain of Dura. And I'm going to have everybody in the nation come and bow down. We're going to have all different types of people, satraps, prefects, all these different types of people coming. What is the purpose of this? What's going on here? This is the Tower of Babel reincarnated. Many scholars believe that the plain of Dura is the same place where they built the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11. The Tower of Babel was a monument to a one-world government where everybody came together under one rule. King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to relive that. He's trying to unite everybody under his rule in a one-world type of totalitarian government. And he wants all the diversity of the kingdom to come and bow to this monument that he builds to himself, this towering memorial to his imperial rule. I mean, we've seen symbols like this in our culture, haven't we? You've got the Nazi swastika, the communist hammer and sickle. Anytime you want to create a totalitarian rule and force people to obey, create a unifying symbol by which everybody must bow an allegiance to. That's what he's doing. He's trying to unite the kingdom under one rule, and he's also trying to elevate himself as the imperial ruler of all things. What's the greatest sin in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Idolatry. You look at Genesis to Revelation, the one sin that God condemns more than any other sin is idolatry. And idolatry cuts right to the heart of the issue because the real question here is, will these young men pledge allegiance to God or will they pledge allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar? Here's what happens in the life of a person that commits idolatry. Romans 1, 22 through 25, Paul clearly describes the, 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 uh, the downward spiral. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing right here. You ever heard of Nietzsche, the philosopher, God is dead? Listen to a quote by Nietzsche. If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? Insightful statement. If there is a God, how can I bear not to be 
that God. That's Nebuchadnezzar. So in an attempt to be God himself, here's the rules. You hear the orchestra play, you bow down, and you worship. You fall on your knees, no questions asked, and you give homage to this golden image. Isaiah says something interesting about images, about idols. Isaiah 46, 6-7, he says this, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it up to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer and save him from his trouble. So here's the issue. When the band begins to play, bow down and worship. No questions asked. Just a side note. All the instruments that were used in this orchestra were not used in the worship of Israel. These were pagan instruments. And the people do just that. If you don't bow down and worship, you face the wrath of the king, the fiery wrath of the king, a fiery furnace. And the the band begins to play, and the entire nation bows down and worships, except for three young Jewish boys, all alone. They don't bow down. And notice what happens in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, There at that time came certain Chaldeans, They came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Interesting terminology here, maliciously accused. It means to eat, to devour. They chewed them up and spit them out. They maligned them with their words. They ate them for lunch. And so here's the epitome of of false idolatry, the, the epitome of false worship from the king all the way down to everybody in the nation. They're all mindlessly bowing down to this huge golden statue in fear. If they don't, wrath of the king, fiery furnace. Nobody wants to go there. And then you have these three lonely teenage boys who stand in stark contrast to the compromising society around them. They don't bow the knee. They don't give in. They don't capitulate. They don't forsake their God, who is the true and living God. And you may ask the question, well, where's Daniel in all of this? Great question. We really don't know. A lot of scholars believe that maybe Daniel was sent on a mission, like an envoy or an emissary, maybe to another part of the empire, so he wasn't here for this dedication. For whatever reasons, Daniel's not in the picture during this time. It's the focus on the three boys. So, how does this megalomaniac, insecure, arrogant king respond to the defiance of these impertinent young teenage boys? Hell hath no fury like a king scorned. This is not the wrath of Khan. This is the wrath of Neb. Verse 13, we find this furious rage. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. I want you to see the height of arrogance in one verse here. Look at verse 16. At the very end of verse 16, Nebuchadnezzar says these venomous, arrogant, idolatrous words, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. Who's God? How's he going to deliver you out of my hands? 
Don't you remember, Nebuchadnezzar, from last week? There is only one God, the God of heaven, who created you, who gave you your kingdom, who created the fire in your fiery furnace. He tears down kingdoms. He raises up kingdoms. He is the creator God. He is the sovereign God. He has the right to wipe you off the map, King Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you know that your kingdom will come crashing down in the dream that you saw? How in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, can you say, who is this God? I mean, just a few moments ago, Nebuchadnezzar was bowing down to Daniel. He was paying homage to Daniel. He was seemingly being religious. It was all a show. There's no change in this man. There's no transformation in this man. He is still the God of himself, and he elevates himself to Godhood and says, who's going to save you? Is there a God that can save you out of my clutches? It's the height of blasphemy. The height of blasphemy. But as we keep reading reading the rest of the story we see these three young boys, these three teenage boys, and how they don't fear the wrath of the king. They don't fear the wrath of King Nebuchadnezzar. They have a holy and healthy fear of the living God. Let's keep reading. Verse 16 through 18. This is, this is classic right here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I love it. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. If Nebuchadnezzar was marked by false worship, false idolatry, false expressions of devotion, we see in these three young men true worship true devotion. Let me show you some aspects this morning. There's five of them that we see about these young men that show their devotion. First of all, what we see here, not compromising is sometimes very lonely. Think about how lonely these boys would have been. I mean, everybody else is bowing down and they're the only ones standing there. You know what peer pressure is like as a 15-year-old. Sometimes standing up for Christ can be a lonely place. I have seen it. In my years of youth ministry, I have seen those youth that stand for Christ, and many of them are lonely because they're not going along with the crowd. And let me just tell you, that's part of the package of being a Christian. Sometimes it is lonely when you're the only one not bowing down. But there was three of them. They had that that bond. Secondly, they determine to obey God rather than men. I mean, they say, we don't need to tell you anything about this, King. It's none of your business why we're not bowing down to you. It reminds me of, of Peter and, and John when they were brought before the authorities and told not to keep preaching Jesus. And in Acts 5.29, they respond with this. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Ultimately, our allegiance is to our Heavenly Father, Not to you, O king. Thirdly, they trusted in God's powerful ability to save them. Notice what they say. In verse 17, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. God has the ability. God has the power. God has the strength. God has the sovereignty. God has the might. We serve a God who's able to do all things. He is able That's true worship, realizing that God is able to do all things. Nothing is impossible for God. Fourthly, they trusted 
in the sovereignty of God regardless of the outcome. This is a startling passage of Scripture right here. In verse 18, it's probably one of the most startling passages of Scripture in the entire Old Testament because notice what they say. Even if God doesn't rescue us, even if we become charcoal, we're not bowing down. We are trusting in our sovereign God regardless of what the outcome is. It's like Job. Job 13, 15, he says this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will argue my ways to his face. This is true worship. The heart of a believer who's willing to do whatever God says, even if we don't know the outcome. It's like Jesus when he's in the garden and he's sweating drops of blood and he knows that he's going to the cross. And he prays, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Fifthly, we see a single-hearted devotion. They don't back down. They are singly-heartedly devoted to the living God. No backing down. No compromise. We will be thrown into this fiery furnace before we stand up or before we bow down to this golden image. We have a single-hearted devotion. And here's the interesting thing that you need to remember and I need to remember. God's grace is sufficient in the moment of your trial. When you face a trial, you may wonder, how in the world could I be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? In the moment of the trial, God's grace is there in that moment. And it's more than sufficient than what you need. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's see how the story unfolds. Verse 19 Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's an irony there. The guys that were obeying the king got burned. The guys that didn't obey the king come out alive. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The king was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and their appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their head was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Now, you thought the king was mad earlier? He erupts in uncontrollable rage. Let's heat this thing seven times hotter. Let's get it to maximum Fahrenheit. Let's get this thing going. Now, we don't know the psychology of the king. We don't know why he got mad. Was he just simply mad because they defied him? Or was there something under the surface? I think this. The the scripture doesn't say, but I think this. 
I think he was mad, not only because they defied him, but in the back of his mind, he knew he saw something in those boys that reminded him of the coming judgment of God. That their allegiance to the living God bothered him to the core of his being, and it shook him. One commentator has said this, when we do stand up to our idols, we had better be prepared to experience their wrath. Our idols are strong. They will want to consume us. They will want to overcome us. They promise a lot. Idols promise a lot, but in the end, they are liars. Think of the words of Jesus, Matthew 16, 25 through 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man gain in return for his life? Here's the, the thing about the story. The three men were thrown into the fiery furnace and they don't become charcoal. They're walking around in there. And then Nebuchadnezzar's amazed because he sees what? A fourth person. Now there's a lot of debate about who's the fourth person. Commentators, some commentators say it's an angel. Other commentators say it's Jesus, a pre-incarnate Christ. I tend to lean on the side that it was Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ himself in the fiery furnace. Regardless of which view you hold, the, 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 the point of it is, is that they were delivered. God rescued them. Now here's, an, here's a, a verse from Isaiah that really is poignantly tied to the story about the fiery furnace. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Notice, God doesn't promise to remove you from the water. He doesn't promise to remove you from the fire. He says, when you go through the water, when you go through the fire, what does he promise though? He promises his presence. He promises his power. God says, when you go through these trials, I'm right there with you. I'm right beside you. I'm taking you through these things. You are mine. I've called you by name. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you also may be glad when his glory is revealed. And I love this. They don't come out bald. Not even a hair singed. Not even a, a burn mark on their turbans or their clothing. And then they don't even smell like smoke. I know when I'm out barbecuing and you come back in, what do you smell like? Smoke. They don't even have the smell of smoke on them. Now, will this time be the time for the king to have a transformation? Maybe after this, the king will come to his senses and say, okay, I surrender. Your God is the God. I surrender myself. I repent. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I give my life to this king. I'm going to finally see this transformation and cast myself at the mercy of God. Do we see this in the king? Let's keep reading. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and yet 
set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Is there a change? If you look deeper, not really. I mean, he saw the powerful miracle, but notice again, he never claims God to be his God. Again, it's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just like it was the God of Daniel. And as you shall see in chapter 4 next week, we don't see a change. He's impressed with God, but he doesn't worship God. Let me just tell you something this morning. You can be impressed with Jesus and not bow the knee to King Jesus. You can look at a distance at Jesus and be impressed with him as, as the one who died on the cross and rose again, and you can look at him as a great teacher, and from a distance you can be very impressed with Jesus and say, Jesus is a cool guy. I think I like Jesus. He seems to be a good teacher, and from a distance you can be very impressed. That is not going to save you. Salvation comes in giving your life to this Jesus, embracing this Jesus, saying, He is my Lord. He's my Savior. He's not just the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And then the king does some type of token display of, 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 of religion. Okay, I'm going to make this rule, and then I'm going to promote these guys. Token religion. He's trying to win brownie points with God. Doesn't bow down and worship God, but okay, I think I'll promote these guys. I'll show a little penance, maybe, that I'm in God's good graces. The text doesn't tell us this, but we have to wonder. The text doesn't say this. Was the statue ever torn down? We don't know. It may have been standing there for the rest of his, of his rule. The Bible doesn't say that he went out and said, I repent, let's tear down the statue, and let's worship the one true God. We don't know. And sometimes people think they're okay with God by doing little token acts of kindness. If I just do a little penance here, if I do a little token of kindness, if I just do a little good works here or there, if I just do a, a few things to somehow make myself good with God, then he'll let bygones be bygones and he'll just sweep it under the carpet and, and things will just be okay if I just do a little good works here and there to show God that I, I'm somewhat serious. But God requires repentance, a turning away from sin and desperation that God has every right to destroy you. And the only way you escape his wrath is by falling on your knees in front of King Jesus and pleading for mercy. Now there's a great and beautiful irony in the story. They're rescued, right? Did God abandon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Did God forsake them? Did God go through the fires with them? Yes, they were saved. They were not abandoned. They were not forsaken. But think about Jesus. When Jesus Christ went through his fiery furnace on that cross, he was alone. God abandoned Jesus. God forsook Jesus. God poured out the full fury of his wrath on Jesus. God didn't spare his own son. Christ went through the fiery furnace so you and I would not have to. Matthew 27, 46. What did Jesus cry out when he was on the cross? About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sekbathane, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was alone on that cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, 
He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin on that cross. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who has hanged on that tree. He died naked and alone on that tree without anything. Nobody came to his rescue. God poured out his wrath. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth on that cross alone, bearing the full weight of God's fury so that you and I could not have to bear the full weight of God's fury. For all the times that we committed idolatry, for all the times that we bowed down to a false god, for all the times that we failed to stand up for truth, all the times that we Messed up, Christ stood alone on that cross and experienced a fiery furnace. Think about the wrath of God for a moment. We saw the wrath of the king. The fiery wrath of King Nebuchadnezzar was an out-of-control, childish, selfish type of wrath. But what about God Almighty? Does God Almighty have the right to show wrath to people that don't bow down to him? The king showed wrath in a fiery furnace to people that don't bow down to his statue. Does God Almighty have the right to show wrath to people that won't bow down to him? Absolutely. God does pour out his wrath. And there's one of two ways that God will pour out his wrath. The first way is that God pours out his wrath on Jesus in your place so that you will not have to experience the pains of a fiery furnace forever in hell. And when you trust Christ for salvation, all of your sins are forgiven. And the wrath of God has been absorbed in your place through the sacrifice of Christ. That's one way God pours out his wrath. The other way is simply this. For all those that don't bow the knee to King Jesus, there is fiery wrath an eternal conscious torment that's a whole lot hotter than a fiery furnace. It's called hell. Better to suffer the wrath of those who persecute us on this earth than to suffer the wrath of God forever in hell. But here's the miracle. Jesus crossed through to the other side. What was the other side of the cross? Resurrection. What happens to us on the other side? Christ saves us through the fires of hell and grants us eternal life in heaven. We can come through the fires of hell to the other side because of King Jesus. What will you do today? It's real simple. You got two choices this morning. One, you can be like Nebuchadnezzar. Shallow, token, maybe a quasi-spiritual experience where you may give lip service to God, but you never wave the right flag and surrender yourself before King Jesus. Will you walk out of here like King Nebuchadnezzar, never bowing the knee to King Jesus, always inflating yourself, maybe even being a little religious, but never having that true transformation or will you be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and confess with your mouth, Jesus is my Lord. It's not the the God of my parents. It's not the God of my neighbors. He's not the Christ of my friends. He is my 
personal Christ. I've seen the glories of Jesus while he's dying on the cross. I've seen his excellencies. I've seen his beauty. I've seen his grace. I've seen the impending wrath of God. I've seen the fires of hell. I've seen what it means to turn my face upon Christ. And I come in repentance and humility and I bow myself before this king and say, Jesus, please save me. And the, and the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me just tell you this morning, there is no time to mess around. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. I've been faced with death the past three days in a hospital room with someone who's on their deathbed. And I'm not here to scare anybody, but I will just say this. There is a fiery furnace awaiting all those who don't bow the knee to King Jesus and trust in him alone for salvation. Will you be saved from the fiery wrath of the king? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning.